Our sermon today will be taken from John 12:31 to 38. This is the word of God. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just, I said to, just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you. Let us pray one more time. Father, help us serve you in the strength that you supply. Let your spirit be present and let you cause eyes to see your glory, the eyes of the faith, the eyes of the heart. And may those who are still dead be made alive and may those who are still slumbering be woken up today to the glorious and the majesty of the love that you've offered us in Christ Jesus. Father, as we come to this text, Help us be fixed uh, upon you. Help us pay attention to the meaning of the text and help us take out this meaning and apply it into our lives, Father, in a way that you've ordained us to be. Father, help us now as we go through this passage. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Friends, just a reminder that we are in the Gospel of John. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of John. And last week we saw that Jesus is not preparing his disciples for the farewell discourse. Judas had just left Jesus. Judas had just betrayed Jesus. Um, It's been revealed to the disciples that Judas is a lover of money over Jesus. And now it is put in motion that Jesus will be crucified. And we saw from last week that an emphasis that Jesus is putting upon his disciples' minds as he goes through the farewell discourse, as he prepares the disciples for his departure unto the cross and ultimately to death, we're reminded by Jesus that this is a mission that he has to undertake alone. In other words, Jesus is not primarily our example in these passages. Jesus is instead primarily our representative. Look again at verse 33. We read this last week. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And then in verse 36, he's going to repeat that again to Peter. Where I am going, you cannot come now. So whatever Jesus is about to do here, Jesus will have to do alone. And our task as Christians, what we, what we are receiving in the gospel as Christians is that we are enabled to rest by his side like the beloved disciple. And this is everything we've covered last week. So now that Judas had gone away, Judas had left the community, it's been revealed that Judas was a betrayer, Jesus will now address his disciples proper, those who were his true disciples, and will begin to unfold for them what's going to take place as he departs from them. And that's going to be the whole of the text from John 13, the rest of John 13, our text today, and also John 14, 15, 16, and 17. So now we will see what Jesus is going to say to his disciples as he prepares them for his departure. 
So there are three things I want to point out from this text today. There's a lot of things we can point out, but three things I want to point out. The first is the weight of the love command. What is the weight of the love command? Why is this commandment so real, so, so significant that Jesus is saying that this is the new commandment that he's going to give them as he departs from them? This is the one thing that he wants them to know. Love one another. What is the weight of the love command? Second, the glory of the love command. What is the basis or the glory? What does it mean to be uh, glorified at this moment? Why is the love command a glorious thing? Why is it new? What makes it a new commandment? Surely, people have commanded one another to love one another. So what's new about it? What's the glory there? Third, the power of the love command or the effect of the love command or the spread of the love command. How does this love command spread? What is it that motivates its effects? What is it that causes it to spread like um, a, a blessing that is infectious in a way? So first, the weight of the love command. Let's just go through what the love command is first and the weight behind it because it should really sober us up. Look at verse 34 and 35 and what Jesus says there to his disciples. He says there, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is saying here that a mark of you being a true disciple of Jesus, a, a true significant mark, how you can tell, in other words, that you really are a disciple of Christ, how you really are a follower of Christ, and not a fake, and not a Judas, Someone that truly is in Christ Jesus is that you would have love for one another. And if you turn to the letter of 1 John, which is kind of a commentary on this passage, I think. The letter of 1 John, uh, which is written by John himself as well, the author of the Gospel of John. There, he heightens it up. He argues there in 1 John 4, 7, that beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words... The way that you know that you've been newly created by God, the way that you know that you have been loved by God, the way that you know that you have the love of God by the Spirit of God residing in you so that you're a new creation, is that you would love one another. Loving one another, that means, is a direct effect of being loved by God. Loving one another is a direct effect of being chosen by God, of being sanctified by God, of being newly created by God. Loving one another is the mark of the true Christian. And not just that, look at verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not only is this a true mark of a true Christian that is kind of secret, like that's how you know, and we're going to go through that, but it's also how people would know that you are a true Christian. There's a weight in it such that when the world looks at you and assesses your life and assesses the way you love one another, they can tell whether or not you're a genuine follower of Jesus. And there's a weighty thing that should really wake us up because I think if you walked around today in um, the secular world in Jakarta and you meet a skeptic, and if you ask them oftentimes, why do you not believe in God? Why do you not go to church? Why do you not believe in Jesus? Yeah, sure, they, they all have a lot of objections about the problem of evil, about why God seems so unfair in certain occasions. But one of the objections that I hear often of why people don't believe in Christ, why people don't believe in God or go to church, is a very common saying, right? I can't go to church because everyone there is just the same like everybody else. I don't want to go to church because everyone there seems to be more judgmental more backbiting, 
more uh, gossiping than any other community. I can't, go to, I can't go to God because I really don't believe in the church. And a lot of people also say I'm spiritual but not religious. And what I think that could mean is that I might want to believe in God, but I can't be a part of the church because the church seems so hypocritical, so terrible at loving one another that oftentimes I could feel a greater kind of acceptance elsewhere, right? So there's kind of weight to this because if we are really honest about ourselves, really honest about each other, oftentimes when the world looks at us, they don't see us as a community that is any different from anyone else. And in fact, it's, it's a weight behind our shoulders because that means, friends, we have to take this seriously, it means that there's a certain sense in which the world can take a look at us and see our lack of love, and that could be a real and genuine reason to doubt whether or not our faith is genuine. There should be a real sense in which you, have, you feel this responsibility to bear the name and love of Christ such that when you go into the world, there's something attractive about you. There's something, and remember, right, this is Jesus talking to you. His disciples, this is, this is addressing his church. This is not for everyone. This is why Judas had to leave first. In other words, Jesus is saying here, there should be a bond of love within the church that should be palpably, tangibly different from the kind of communities that you see anywhere else. That people, when they come into the fellowship of the church, should be able to see a greater Love, a greater transparency, a greater vulnerability, a lack of gossip, a lack of backbiting, a lack of slandering one another that they might see elsewhere. So that they could see this community is different. People just help out one another. This community is different. People just open up and they don't feel like they need to cover their faces and, and image manage themselves and, and, and put their best feet forward with them. They can, they can show their brokenness. People are different. Do we consider this our responsibilities? And we, can we be honest with ourselves and say, is our community any different from any other community? Or have we given a world, the world a reason to question our faith? So that should really wake us up because the world can really understand and question whether or not our faith is genuine by, on the basis of whether or not we really love one another. But at the same time, it shouldn't just sober us up and wake us up. It should also encourage us. Because friends, oftentimes it's not just the world questioning us and it's not just a response to, to, to go to the world and say, here is the love that makes us different. But also, if you are right now here and you consider yourself a Christian and there's a voice in your head from last night or this morning, this past week or this past year, and it's a voice that you would hear often. And it's a voice that goes like this. How can you call yourself a Christian if you still do so and so, if you still struggle in such and such a way, how can you call yourself a Christian if this is the kind of thought pattern that you have, if this is the kind of feeling pattern that you have, how can you still call yourself a Christian? Well, if what Jesus is saying here is true and what if John is saying here is true, the implication of this is it could encourage you because now you can consider yourself a Christian not only in the way that Jesus has forgiven you, yes, but also in another way. Do you have a relationship of love with someone else in this church that you would otherwise not have had if you were both not Christians? Do you have a relationship of love that you have with another Christian that you both never would have had if you weren't Christians? In other words, the very reason why you're 
fellowshipping with one another, friends with one another, it's not because of a common hobby, not because you both come from the same financial strata, not because you both come from the same background or ethnicity or race, but rather precisely because you both know that you're both sinners received and loved by Christ. This is the kind of friendship that centers that bond between the both of you. So you can remind yourself, I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm a Christian because I keep up this fellowship of love. And I know that I never would have been friends with this person. I never would have felt this bond of love and fellowship with this person if I have not been first received by Christ. And that should be an absolute reminder for you. Yes, Christian, you are in the fellowship of Christ. You know, I have a friend that I call a dear friend of mine that every time I think about this friendship, I know for a fact that um, God exists and Christ is true and his love is real and, 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 and amazing. You see, I wasn't always a Christian. I uh, grew up basically an atheist. And um, I had a headmaster in our school and I actually went to Skolapita uh, Harapan. A lot of you are teachers there or have gone to school there. And I had a headmaster there named Brian Cox. He is absolutely different from me. He um, came from um, the United Kingdom. He is a resident of Australia. He ended up in... Espeha as a headmaster for about a decade there, and we were Facebook friends for a long time, even before I was a Christian. At a one point, um, he messaged me on Facebook one time, um, this a pretty sobering uh, letter, and he said, "Great, it seems to me that there is no more fruit in being friends with you on Facebook." <laughs> Very bold. Uh, absolute transparency, very direct. I love it. Back then, I didn't love it. I was honestly kind of irked by it. I was amazed that he would have the audacity to just say this because he said there was so much, maybe you can't believe this, but there was so much vulgarity in your Facebook feed that there's, it's, it's toxic to my life and adds no value to me and I think we need to uh, be not friends anymore on Facebook. I can't even stand your social news feed. Fine, I didn't even reply. I just found out that we're not lo- no longer friends on Facebook. And, and many months, I think even close to a year, uh, passed over that. And you see, at this point, um, I started to have discussions with him um, over his office hours um, almost every week. And when I became a Christian, he was the first person I texted. He was the first person I texted. And I remember it very clearly, September 28, 2008. And I said, Brian Cox, or Mr. Brian, I think it's time for me to turn a new leaf. I think I've just become a Christian. We need to talk. I remember on my little Nokia phone. And uh, so we did. And until today, we've been friends for, how long has it been? 10 years? Every week, I get messages from him. We talk. He still knows about my deepest problems. He knows my, about my deepest sadnesses. He knows about my deepest joys. We update each other. Every time he comes back, it's almost as if he never left. You see... There is a, a bond of fellowship that you might have with someone else that you never would have had if you weren't both Christians. Do you have that kind of friendship? Can you not think of someone that is absolutely and utterly different from you that you would have never even talked to, maybe, maybe even an enemy? I know stories of Christians, they, they were bullies when they were growing up. One was a bully, the other one was bullied, and now they come to the same church. I know stories of Christians, of, of, of people that they thought that they, they could never stand even the side of that person, and, and they, they come to the same church. 
Matthew the tax collector, Peter the fisherman. Totally different people, different jobs, different careers, and ultimately later you're going to see Greeks and Jews coming together, sharing table fellowship. How do you know you're a Christian? Is this the kind of friendships that you long for? That you're no longer satisfied with the kind of friendships that the world offers? No longer on the basis of whether you can both climb the social ladder together? No longer on the basis of whether you're both invited to the same grand weddings where you don't know anyone else? Not even on the basis of the kind of family backgrounds you think you want to have? But rather, there's a bond, and it's a wordless bond oftentimes. You meet someone, a Christian, you just met that person, and for five minutes you knew, Jesus saved you too. And that's enough. Let's go have coffee. Let's go have, let's go have a meal. That's enough. Do you, do you long for this kind of friendship? If you do, you know you're a Christian. And if you don't, wake up. Have you been floating? That's the, there's a weight to this command, friends. Reassess your lives and at the same time, encourage yourself to think about the many friendships you've formed because of your Christian faith. But are we not moved by this? So let's go to our second point, the glory of the love command. What motivates this kind of friendship? What motivates this kind of love between utterly different people to come together despite financial disparity, economic disparity, and ethnic disparity, to come together and, and form this bond of transparency of love, of laying down our rights, our prides, so that we can have fellowship with one another? Well, look at verse 31 again. This is kind of the basis, I think, for the love command that Jesus sets out in verse 34. When he had gone out, this is Judas going out. Remember, he left. It's been revealed that he was a betrayer. When Jesus, I mean, sorry, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Hmm. Just imagine the scene, all right? Jesus had just announced that Judas was a betrayer, giving him the morsel of bread, and Judas had just won out. The disciples had no idea what's going on. John is probably shocked at what's happening, perplexed at what's about to take place, and maybe you would expect that Jesus would be absolutely disheartened as John was here, right? Judas had just been revealed to be a betrayer, and he's about to set in motion the events that would lead to Jesus' utterly shameful crucifixion, a bloody violent, terrible death. Now, what comes to your mind when you think of the word glory? And glory is, an, is maybe an archaic word for some of us. Glory just simply means something that makes a particular object worthy of worship, worthy of weightiness, worthy of attraction, worthy of um, something that, that we can call beautiful, utterly resplendent, right? Something glorious. You might think of a, a bride at a wedding, you might think of a particular cathedral, maybe. Some of you who are obsessed with um, the Avengers, maybe Captain America. I don't know. You might think to yourself that these are the greatest exemplifications of glory. But, but notice Jesus is saying something utterly counterintuitive here. Judas had won out. Jesus has just announced his betrayal. And now he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. He didn't say this when he calmed the storm. He didn't say this when he fed the 5,000. He didn't even say this in the transfiguration in Matthew 17 when Jesus suddenly comes out in the mountain, right, with Moses and Elijah, his, his face all glorious and white. No, he says this in a particularly stunningly 
almost depressing moment. The moment where he, he announces his betrayal and, and towards his crucifixion, he says, now I will be glorified. Not in another moment that you would expect, but now I'll be glorified. The crucifixion, the betrayal, and that's absolutely astounding. What is it about this crucifixion, about this betrayal, that is glorious to him? Well, I think that glory that he's talking about, verse 31, has something to do with the newness of verse 34. He says that this commandment to love one another is a new commandment. But really, is it? You know, we read in our call to worship, Leviticus, Leviticus 19, 18, where it already says in the Old Testament, by the law of Moses, that you ought to love one another as yourself. You have to love your brother and your neighbor as yourself. So surely what Jesus is saying here, it's not that the commandment per se is new. So what is new about the commandment? What's new about the commandment is not in the command itself, but rather as the basis of the command. Jesus provides a new model, a new way, a new basis of loving one another. And what is that basis? It's the second part of verse 34. Just as I have loved you. You may have known the commandment, Jesus is saying, from Leviticus 19. You may have known the commandment from the Old Testament to love one another, but you haven't seen a love like this. You haven't seen a glory like this. You haven't seen something so beautiful, something so utterly loving, something so utterly lovable, something so utterly glorious as this. What I'm about to do for you. Love one another just as I have loved you. And what does this love entail? We're going to go through Simon Peter's betrayal in a moment, but, but notice what Jesus says to Peter's prideful boast in verse 38. Peter had just said, Lord, I'm going to lay down my life for you. Jesus is about to predict his betrayal as well. But, but Lord, I'm going to lay down my life for you. Unlike all the other disciples, Peter is saying, I will lay down my life for you. So wherever you're going, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do everything that you're going to do. Look at what verse 38 says. Look at how Jesus answered. Will you lay down your life for me? And I don't think that's mockery. I don't even think that that's sarcasm. I think what Jesus is saying there is this, Peter, you've missed the point. It's not your life or mine. It's my life or yours. Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? No, you don't understand. You can't follow me because I'm going to lay down my life for you. What greater love is there than this? And, and John, in, in his letter in, the, in 1 John, he, he, he goes to utter worship, I think, in this, and he repeats it over and over again in, first, in chapters 3 all the way to 4. And I'll just read this out for us. In 1 John 3.16, he says this, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. That's 1 John 3.16. 1 John 4, 10 to 11, as we saw in our assurance of pardon. And this is love. Not that we have loved God. See, Peter got it backwards. But that he loved us and sent his son to the, the propitiation or the wrath bearer or the payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And in 1 John 4, 19, it says, we love simply because he first loved us. You see, what is the glory of God in his betrayal, in his utterly violent, you might even think an ugly 
display of a crucifixion. Friends, what the Bible is communicating in this is this. The glory of God is most seen, most clearly displayed, not in the most obvious forms of beauty to the eyes, but rather in a terrible cross that shows most clearly, most, most, most splendidly, a kind of self-sacrificial love that should melt your heart and becomes the basis for your acts of love as well. In other words, there's something absolutely glorious about self-sacrificial love that no other display could communicate. Now, I'm about to spoil a movie for you, and some of you might hate me for this. It's not The Avengers, so don't worry. <laughs> so you're all wondering. Uh, everyone's relieved. I know a lot of you are going to watch The Avengers, but it's not The Avengers. But I'm going to spoil a rather recent movie as well, though. And it's three weeks ago, I think this movie came out. So three weeks, I think it's fair game. So if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. But if you have, maybe it's more incentive for you to go to see it. See, three weeks ago, a little movie, a horror movie called The Quiet Place came out. Okay, so let's calm down now. Um, a little movie called The Quiet Place had come out. You see, it's a horror movie. In other words, it's not exactly the most uh, nice, it's not exactly the nicest movie to look at, right? The, the premise of the movie is that there were aliens that have landed on Earth, monsters, who react to sound, and they're utterly fast monsters. And if you make the slightest sound, the movie is a, basically a silent movie. There's no sound, no, no real dialogue, maybe one or two lines here and there. But really, the whole movie is predicated upon the silence, and the monster reacts to the smallest kind of silence, and destroys the person that makes the sound. And it's, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. It's gory. It's, 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 it's a lot and a lot of it's very violent. It's scary. But you see, in the middle of the movie, actually towards the climax of the movie, there's one scene that displays something absolutely beautiful. And John Krasinski, who's the director and the actor in the movie, in, in an interview with Jimmy Fallon, See, I love the movie so much, I watched all the interviews on it or afterwards. Um, he was in an interview with Jimmy Fallon, and Jimmy Fallon said, this is an absolutely terrifying movie, you know, um, what makes you want to make it? And John Krasinski replied, and he said, yeah, the movie's terrifying and all that, but what really moved me to make it, and what, how I know people really get this movie, is when they come away from this movie saying, not that this was scary, but that this was beautiful. Not that they were scared, but they were weeping. Because in the center of the movie, it's not about the monsters themselves, but at the center of the movie, as the first scene will show, and often at the ending, there's a daughter who feels guilty about a particular misdeed that she did against the family. It's a mistake, a terrible mistake that she did. She feels utterly guilty. And then she's always questioning in her head, does my dad still love me? And she's, she's deaf, and that's how the family has managed in this apocalyptic era, that they would communicate in sign languages so the monsters couldn't hear them. She's always wondering, does dad really love me? There's dramatic moments in the movie where she's questioning her dad's love for her because of this mistake, this guilt that always is before her, right? And then towards the climax of the movie, a monster is after her. She's hiding in a car. The monster is ripping apart the car, right, because she made a sound. And, and her dad knew that there's no possible way that she, he could fight off this monster. There's just no way. And at an amazing climactic moment of the movie, what the dad does is not pick up his axe to go run after the monster. Instead, he throws the axe to the ground, making a sound. And in that instantaneous moment, the monster hears the sound, 
looks towards the dad and starts running toward him. And as the monster is running toward him, the dad in sign language motions to the daughter, I have always loved you. I've always loved you. And he died a gruesome death, yes, but that's beautiful. And that melted the daughter's heart, absolutely melted her. In an interview, John Christine said, you know, everyone weeps in that one scene. Did you weep, Jimmy? Yeah, I did. So it's, 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 it's that one scene. Why is everyone moved at self-sacrificial love? Even at a horror movie. No matter what worldview you come from, Christian, non-Christian, you're always moved by self-sacrificial love. That's why I think the gospel is so gloriously true because there's no, there's no higher good than someone laying down their lives for their loved ones. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Peter, not your life for mine, but my life for yours. I have always loved you. That's how Jesus opened up. Jesus washing the disciples' feet. I have always loved you until the very end. Peter, don't you understand? I have to do this for you. So finally, last point, the power of the love command. Friends, that should really move you. What is the effect of the love? What is it that makes this love command so rooted in your heart that you can't help it but love one another? That should melt your heart. You see, it's interesting. If you take a look at Peter's life, how much he's pivoted, right? So Jesus is, is, is rebuking him here. Peter was prideful. He's saying, Lord, I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm going to, I'm going to give up everything for you. Trying to you know, boast in how much he's better than all the other disciples. And Jesus predicts his betrayal. Really? Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to abandon me three times, Peter. You don't know yourself. This isn't about you. In fact, you're about to commit the most cowardly act. You know, oftentimes when you make a mistake, sometimes when I preach a bad sermon, I say to myself, I'm going to redeem myself next week. You know, I'm going to, when I make a mistake, I'm going to say, I'm going to make it up next week. And Peter could have been saying that the first time. But this isn't just one time, it's the second time and third time. And the third time you read Mark 14, Peter doesn't just deny Jesus, Peter invokes curses upon himself, swearing that he doesn't know Jesus. This is cowardice of cowardice. This, this is, there's, no, there's, no, there's no denying the cowardliness of Peter here, right? So what is it then that Jesus means here Look at verse 36 again. Look at what Jesus says to Peter there. There's something that we often miss and we, we glide by it. Jesus answered to Peter, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. So Jesus is saying, right now, I have to do this for you. My life for yours, Peter. You can't follow me now. I am your representative, not just your example. But he says later, you will follow me. You cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? And this is not the first time Jesus says something like this, by the way. You later look at John 21, after Jesus forgives Peter, he says, someone will drag you where you do not want to go, and you will stretch out your hands. You see, Jesus is predicting here in this passage in John 21, something that we know from the historical records. 50 years after Jesus' death and crucifixion, the emperor Nero took over Rome and started a persecution, a, 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 an empire-wide persecution of Christians where he would light Christians on fire and crucify them. 
he would blame all of the diseases and all the disasters that befell Rome on the Christians because Christians refused to worship the Roman gods. Christians refused to pay homage to the, to the emperor in these ways. So Nero said, we got to get rid of all the Christians. You see, Peter wrote First Peter in that context. Peter would write, this fiery trial is nothing compared to the glories that wait you. Stand true, persevere. That's the message of 1 Peter. Persevere under the weight of suffering. You see, what happened, as the history books tell us, is this. Peter and that persecution was crucified for Jesus' sake. And when he was crucified, what Peter said was, crucify me upside down, lest people mistake me for my Savior. And so he was. Peter was not merely crucified, but crucified upside down for Jesus' sake. What could have transformed such a cowardly, prideful figure like Peter who would boast and say, I will lay down my life for you and the next few hours would deny Jesus three times for his own life. But 50 years later would say, yes, I will die for him too. I will follow after him now. Could it be that Peter had noticed just as first John does, we love and we lay down our lives because he first laid down his. We have nothing else to prove, nothing else to gain. We have the love of God. The condemnation of the devil is no longer gonna be sustained. We have the love that will, that will cause us to persevere. Why? Why should we now then cowardly settle for our own lives? Why should we now cowardly deny each other and not love? Could it be that he was melted? So friends, does this move you? Do you not see the impetus behind the weight of this command? Love one another because he first loved you. Let's pray. What amazing love is this, Lord God? Shall we partake in this death and suffering of yours that you've sent your only son? Amazing love, how can it be that you, Lord God, should die for me? Father, help us see the weight of this gospel. We dare not reverse this order. It's not that we loved you first, so then you love us, but rather you've shown us the pinnacle of self-sacrificial love, your life for ours. And in that way and in that manner and that model, we can now walk in newness of life. Holy Spirit, help us do this. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.